Welcome to Tea and Teaching, the educational podcast you can listen to in your tea break. You're listening with me, Arthmore, and with me, as always, is Mike Harwell. Hi, Mike. Hi, Arthur. How are you? I'm not too bad, buddy. How are you this week? How, how's the week been? Exciting? Oh, it's so exciting. We, we spoke about the last uh, episode of the podcast. I was deep in timetabling. The timetable is finished. Well, as finished as my part of the job needs to be, so... Big celebrations here, a done timetable, just the deputy head at our school just making a few tweaks now and then. The good times will roll. I done timetable, that should be, that's the tagline in your CV going forwards, Mike. I done timetable. It's the best job you can do in a school and I'll argue with anyone who doesn't agree with me on that. So, you know that episode we had on teachers versus leaders, teaching doesn't matter, it's all about the timetable. Mike said it first, we're moving on. Uh, what are you drinking? What have you been watching? What have you been doing? I'm drinking a green tea. I've treated myself to a, a rare treat in Thailand of a custard cream today. Well, a, a rare treat that is, an expensive treat actually, if you live outside the UK. Uh, and this week I have been absolutely addicted to this and my wife managed to binge watch all five episodes in one day, which says something because my wife barely ever watches TV for that long. It's a documentary on Amazon called uh, When Eagles Dare. Uh, all about Crystal Palace Football Club and how they nearly went into liquidation and how they bounced back from the brink of oblivion. Uh, so I've been absolutely stuck watching that this week. I loved the, every minute of it. And it's the classic rags to, it's the rags to not quite riches stories. It's like rags to not below the poverty line story. Well, I, I didn't want to... In- insult any Crystal Palace fans who might listen to this but Amazon have done an incredible job making Crystal Palace seem like an interesting club that's my, the biggest compliment I can give the documentary uh, please tell me you've done something more uh, fulfilling than just watching TV like me this week so as I sit here with my minty tea lovely minty tea today um, I've been listening to Slow Burn, which is one of my favourite podcast series. They bring out about one series a year. And this series, the most recent one, is all about the decision-making process in America that led up to the invasion of Iraq and kind of doing a real deep dive into why that eventually happened. And it's phenomenally interesting in anyone who finds that that time an interesting thing or anything to do with politics. So Slow Burn, I think it's season five now, Um They've also had seasons before on uh, Bill Clinton and Watergate, but it's a real deep dive, real going through bits of paper, highlighting, some talking to you about policy shifts. Really interesting. If you're interested in that kind of thing, I will, I will add that caveat to it. There's very opposite ends of the spectrum there, isn't there, of things we've been doing. Uh, maybe we should switch next week. I'll watch Crystal Palace and you listen to the invasion of Iraq. And then we with can my see highlighters and my notepad. Maybe Roy Hodgson appeared in both, so we can see kind of if there's any parallels. Roy um, Hodgson's involved in the invasion of Iraq. I'd be amazed. But he's a journeyman, so who knows? When anyway, was the invasion we, of Iraq? Um, let's move on. Can we talk about some teaching stuff? Yeah, why not? So should we take a quick break? Let's go fill up our kettles, and then when we're back, we'll be back with our guest today. Uh, very excited about this one, Mike. Welcome back to Tea and Teaching. We're joined by Jade Pierce today. Um, before I let Jade introduce herself, I'm going to introduce her as the most generous person on Twitter. 
Um, if you follow her, you'll know that she shares so many resources based on her research-based approach to teaching. Um, so I want to start off, Jade, by saying thank you. Um, but for anyone who doesn't follow you on Twitter, um, can you give us a little brief summary of yourself and your career to date? Yes, I can. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction, first of all. Um, so I am an assistant head teacher in charge of teaching and learning and CPD at a secondary school in Staffordshire. And I'm also an evidence lead in education for Staffordshire Research School. And that's really what prompted me to start sharing um, resources and um, stuff like that on, on Twitter, because one of the parts of the role is to engage with as many people as you can with, with research um, informed practice. So that's it, really. So what brought you to the in, um, kind of the evidence-based teaching? Was it something you were doing beforehand or was it something you've kind of grown into as you became a teacher? So it definitely wasn't anything that I did at the start of my PGCE. I qualified um, about 14 years ago, ago now. So anyone who qualified around that time, although it was like the dark days of discovery learning and VAK and you had to have things like stuck up around your room and be playing music and all that kind of um, all that kind of thing. So it definitely wasn't anything that I considered uh, or found there. It, actually, it started when I was looking into um, what we were going to do about life after levels. So years and years ago now. And I happened upon the um, class teaching blog by Durrington High School and that kind of one read one thing which led to another thing which led to another thing which led to another thing and then um, kind of discovered make every lesson count and all the all those those kind of books that were out at the time and that kind of led to me myself being engaged in um, evidence and then from that we kind of obviously spread that across our school so it's been a long journey. And did you come from like a like an ac more academic background? Because I know some teachers are really into evidence based. They were really into academia and then came to teaching, or it's kind of the other way around. So it was like. Um, not really. So I took, I took a really traditional route into teaching. So I did my degree and then I did a PGCE and then straight into teaching. So um, I'd, I'd done a master's. So I suppose I've always engaged in, in, in research in, in, in that kind of format. And I've always done, um, I've always loved reading and always loved learning. So I guess I was suited more as a person, but, but no, no um, weird routine or anything like that. Yeah, having a master's is really important, I think. Don't you think, Mike? Yeah, sorry, Jake. This is an in-joke <laughs> where Arthur ridicules me for not having a master's, and he's convinced at some point in my career it's going to come back and haunt me, and he's just <laughs> waiting for that day. Well, if so. it helps, I haven't found that it's made a huge difference to my teaching career. In fact, I wish I'd done it. I'd, I'd done it recently. I wish I hadn't done it yet, so... Um, uh, yeah, I'd love to go and do another one now that I am more in, more research informed and engage more with reading and that kind of thing. So don't worry, it's yeah. fine. Please don't get two before I get one because <laughs> then I'll really be getting grief. <laughs> um, my question was, if, if you're a teacher listening to this and you've not really adopted a research-based approach to your teaching, what would your advice be in terms of where to start? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, first of all, it's really easy to feel massively overwhelmed when you first start looking into evidence-informed teaching and learning for a couple of reasons. One, there is so much, there's so much to read, and especially um, kind of since COVID, 
I, I, even I feel overwhelmed, you know, keep, keeping up with um, all of the CPD opportunities online or like the research at home and the Brewad videos, all of the podcasts that, that are out there. So I'd say try not to feel too overwhelmed and try to identify kind of one or two areas that you're most interested in or you think will make the most difference to your teaching and learning and, and focus on those. So I would say that there's a few main things that you can look at. There's the cognitive science aspect. So obviously like retrieval practice, spacing, interleaving, etc. Cognitive load theory. And I think that partners quite well with explicit instruction feedback literacy i'd say they're the kind of main areas so instead of thinking oh my god i've got to completely change everything that i teach i think maybe focus on one or two areas and then um look at the research into those and then really i think it's just start reading you know start start with reading or listening or watching depending on what you want to do um, and there's a few few kind of seminal works that I would say you should start off with so I think Rose and Shines obviously is massively popular at the moment so just so that you can be involved in those kind of conversations I would have a look at Rose and Shines principles of instruction I really like the um, great teaching toolkit from evidence-based education I think that's really good because it gives you kind of a summary of, of lots of aspect of evidence-based education and then um, have a look at the EEF and then start looking at well if I'm interested in cognitive load theory then there's a couple of papers probably that I should read I've, I've been meaning to for a while blog about if you're interested in this these are the papers that you should probably look at so I'll try to do that at some point and give people a point in the right direction I think the EEF is basically what got me into it because it's it's such a great resource but it starts really simply like you can just go find out those little bits of information and then as you want to kind of learn more it's it's really easy to go and find those stuff so highly recommend the EEF for all that stuff yeah massively agree so my evidence lead in education role is is through the EEF and um yeah if you if you want a starting point if you even just their guidance reports which doesn't cover everything but like you say really simple and they try really really hard to distill the research so it's not just saying this is what the research found it's actually what are the impacts on this for your classroom practice and they've just released their feedback report and in a couple of weeks they'll be releasing their cognitive science report so both of those would be really really good starting points for everybody uh, anybody kind of starting on their evidence-informed journey and then in your kind of role as the assistant head in charge of teaching and learning which is the exact same role Mike has so I'm interested here to see how you two kind of think how do you find about disseminating that information to your to the teachers in your school is that part of your role and if so how do you do that yeah, so it is part of my role. I actually had it added onto my job description um, so that no one could stop me from doing it. Um, <laughs> so it definitely is part of my role. Uh, I think a really important part. So I think there's actually a bit, a, a few steps before this. And if you're ever trying to start as an assistant head teacher or whoever, whatever your role is, if you're trying to start to develop an evidence-informed culture in your school, I think it's really important that that comes from your head teacher. So our head teacher is brilliant and he stood up, um, I don't know, five or six years ago now and said, we are going to start to look at evidence informed practices and these are the reasons why and this is why we're so passionate about it and because it had come from him obviously then it filtered down to our school development plan and then department development plans and we put it in individuals um performance management targets and that kind of thing so i think that's really really important first of all that it's kind of got to come from the top and then i think there's a couple of ways that you can disseminate research the first is just 
getting writing, getting research out to people. Um, we know that the main barriers for teachers engaging with research is access to research and time that, you know, as a classroom teacher, you do not have time to go and sit and read a book at home and not everybody um, wants to spend their weekends um, attending a conference or reading, you know, a 60 page report from the EEF. Um, so one of the techniques is definitely just to simplify it, to summarise. And that's all the stuff that you'll see on my Twitter um, is basically stuff that I've used in my school when I'm trying to make it easier for teachers to engage with research. So book summaries or paper summaries. So that's one way that I do it. If I read something, well, not everyone in my school needs to read that themselves. I've read it so I can summarise it for you. So that's one way, summaries of books and um, papers. And then um, loads of schools now do teaching and learning newsletters. So we do a longer teaching and learning newsletter once a term. And that might include um, a summary of a paper or it might include um, bringing lots of, lots of information about one aspect of pedagogy together. So we might look at effective homework and I'll read everything that I can on effective homework and then summarize that. Or I might look at effective questioning. And again, I'll read everything that I can on questioning and then summarize that. And then we also do a short, uh, shorter teaching learning newsletter, and that really um, is about signposting people to CPD. So if there's been um, a good blog that week or a good podcast or um, a good uh, video presentation online, then it's about saying if you're interested in this, this is something that's that's come out recently. Um, I've also done on my Twitter that series of introductory guides. So again, this will be good for anyone actually who's interested in getting in, getting into evidence-informed education. Um, to stop people feeling so overwhelmed, it's a one-page summary of cognitive science or a one-page summary of cognitive load theory um, or questioning or homework or whatever it is. Um, and so, so I do that as well. Um, and then I suppose you can look at if you find anything on Twitter and you think, oh, this is a really good science resource, you know, I ping that over to my science department, or if there's been a really good blog about uh, PE teaching, I'd ping that over to my head of PE. So just about sharing whatever you find as well, I think. I think it's, there's some great tips there for people kind of in similar roles to yourself. Mike, does that kind of align with things that you try and bring into your school? Or I'm not setting you up for a fail here, buddy. Like I'm, I'm trying to bring you here. <laughs> so it's oh, that no, kind of link we... up. We purely work on anecdotal evidence. Uh, we, don't, we don't read the evidence. Um, no, definitely. We, we're trying to take a more research-based approach. We're kind of really in our infancy with that at the moment. Um, and I know there's a lot more work in, in England being done than there is maybe between international schools. Um, so we're trying to kind of play catch up a little bit in terms of that. The one thing I'd say in terms of the journey we've been on to get to that point where we can now start encouraging staff to look at research and try new things is having uh, a real kind of non-judgmental culture uh, where people know if they go and read some research and they want to try something new no one's going to jump on them for for it going wrong or it not working how they want it to and they need to feel that kind of supportive culture where i'm trying this can you come and look at it and give me some advice on how you think it's working and then they know that they can call one of us in, in that supportive role. Um, and we've actually just created some teacher coaches at our school as well. Um, because I know that the minute you say to someone in SLT, can you come in my room? That's going to be a barrier again to people coming in or wanting people to come in. But if it's a peer who's trained as a coach, um, getting them in to support you, I think that's a lot, a lot less judgmental again. 
Yes, I couldn't agree more with that, actually. We, we're, we've just done something similar. We've just appointed um, teaching learning coaches. And I completely agree. If it's not someone from SLT, then some some teachers will be much more willing to get involved with the process. I also think it's about having what I call a tight but loose approach to our leadership. So in our school, there's certain things that we've said we want to see in lessons. So we want to see retrieval practice. We want to see uh, really challenging lessons going on. We want to see disciplinary literacy, but we don't say how departments or teachers have to implement those things. It's really up to them as the experts in the classroom. And then completely agree with that non-judgmental um, culture. It, it's you, you can't ask people to try on new things and to read research and give things a go if you're then going to go in with like formal lesson observations or anything like that so we've just removed actually all performance management observations from our performance management kind of process we don't do that at all now and all of our um looking at kids work and um popping into lessons it's all just developmental which i think is really important yeah, we've just, we're in the process of coming away from book looks and work scrutinies and actually coming back to sitting down with kids uh, and asking the students, what sort of feedback do you get in this lesson? How do yeah. you find that useful? How do you, and feeding that back to the teacher. Um, and I think that's a lot more useful than kind of look, because you can look through a kid's work, but are you, are you really, can you really judge the quality of teaching from a student's yeah. work? Yeah, completely agree. So we have lots of discussions with pupils and we have lots of discussions with teachers as well. So we're actually, we've, we don't require any written marking at school anymore now, which is another important point. I think if you are going to go down the evidence-informed approach, well, you've got to do it as well as adding things. So I want you to do retrieval practice. I want you to take account of cognitive load theory. You've got to compensate for that by taking some things away. And actually there's evidence out there which will help you to take away the things which have the biggest impact on workload, but have the least impact on student learning. So for us, that one of those things was written marking. Um, another one was written comments on individual reports. So we don't require our, our teachers to do that anymore. And I think that's really important that you are considering workload as well. Um, and then going back to the feedback stuff. Yeah, so we sit down now with kids and teachers and we say, what's worked really well? And, you know, is there evidence of um, or, or have you do you use modelling? Does that help you, et cetera, et cetera, which I think is so, such a richer conversation and you get so much more out of it than just looking for have they written stuff in the kids books? So you talked about your tight but loose model, um, and I'm I'm going to pick up a thread here because I know you've kind of got um, guidance booklets in terms of like what does effective feedback look like and and what does retrieval look back look like. Can you just tell us how you kind of use? I think Tom Sherrington refers to them as playbooks um, when he's talking about his kind of three point communication um, when you're talking to a teacher. Can you tell us how you use those books or those guidance? Yeah. So the, the staff guides, I call them, but essentially it's just a summary of um, the information that we will have given to staff when we were first introducing a new teaching and learning priority. So um, when we first introduced retrieval practice to staff, lots of our, some of our staff had heard of it, but lots of our staff hadn't heard of it. You know, this is, this is going back a few years now. So we did a whole school session on, on, you know what is retrieval practice what does the evidence say um what are the studies that supports it looking at memory and all that kind of thing and then we summarize oh and obviously lots of examples of how you could implement it into your teaching so that was stuff that some department departments in our school had been doing but it was also stuff that um, i found off twitter or that colleagues had said this I've, I've gone into this school and they were doing this 
So we tried to bring that all together basically into one booklet um, so that staff can keep referring back to that. But it is only um, a example of it is not you have got to all do a starter quiz at the start of every lesson and you have all got to do this it is this is lots and lots of best practice and now as a department and as a teacher you decide what is going to work best for you in your subject and for your classes um, so tight in that we want to see retrieval practice but loose in that how you do it when you do it what format it takes is up to you completely it sounds great. It reminds me of when I was early on in my teacher career being told this is how things have to be done. If you don't do them this way, therefore, you're not going to be a good teacher. And it sounds like this is happening a lot more in schools I've talked to, of giving the teachers the tools to go and be as autonomous as they can. So you, we know what we want to see when we walk in a lesson, but we, we don't mind how you do it. And then yeah. what we're bringing, I imagine you're then getting the strengths from the individual teachers, because... I know as a maths teacher, we really struggle as a department where other departments would come and say, oh, why don't you definitely do a starter this way? And be like, oh, well, that doesn't work with maths, but we can take the ideas behind it yes. to do something that works for us. Exactly that. And it's all about trust as well. Trusting your teachers as experts in the classroom. So I, as a business studies and economics specialist, do not want to decide how the English department implement retrieval practice or how the maths guarantee that they're challenging all learners in their lessons, because the people that are best suited to do that is your English teachers and your maths teachers. And that, by the very nature, will look very different in different subjects if they're going to do it most effectively. So in maths, you might do um, one starter quiz where you're going to look at, um, you know, interleaved and space learning. And in English, it might be a really open ended, higher order retrieval practice because it's more about developing skills. So um, it's all about giving autonomy and, and really trusting your, your teachers and your middle leaders that they are the experts and they definitely know better than I know about their subject. And I completely agree with that point on trust. All the research is always based into like we can communicate as much as we want, but if we don't trust the communication source, we're not going to listen. It's kind of a question for both of you. Like it's a very easy thing to say we trust our teachers, but how do you actually show the teachers or the staff in school that you do trust them? Because otherwise it's just a, another kind of management word we're going to keep throwing around. Yeah, that's a really good question. I'll let you go first, Mike. <laughs> I was going to say, it's funny, isn't it? It's almost the, the starter line for any head teacher, isn't it? Saying, I've got an open door policy. Come and see me whenever. I can help with anything. Um, and, you know, that kind of, that first movement towards, I trust you, but just come and see me if you need anything. Um, but I would, I'd go back to that tight and loose model. And we call it um, freedom within a structure. So we're there to create that environment, to create that culture but then you've got to give staff freedom within it. And they've, you've, got to, you've got to act in what you're saying. So you can't say, we trust you, and then have judgmental observations and then be walking in, doing a five-minute learning walk and telling someone it wasn't good enough or that kid wasn't behaving in that way. You've got to, you've got to walk the talk, I guess, um, and show that you're willing for them to make mistakes and that you're going to just constantly support them I think that relentless support is really, really important for people to feel trusted. But although I'm going to let you do what you feel is best, I'm always going to be there as a safety net to catch you if things go wrong or if you need an extra hand. Yeah, completely agree. Um, definitely, it's not just 
oh, we trust you. Um, you've got to show that. So like Mike said, not having judgments on, on the quality of teaching, because I trust that all of our teachers in my school are good. And I know they're all good. So I don't need to go in and do a one hour lesson observation and then say, oh, well, actually this or, or, or anything like that. I think other ways you can show it, we, we really don't micromanage at all. We're not, we don't have things like uh, data meetings. So we're all aware of our data and we might have brief discussions with our kind of link heads of departments. But I'm not then going to check up on the fact that you've done X, Y and Z. I'm going to trust that we've had a professional discussion. We've identified something that needs to be done and, and that, then that head of department has done it. And then little things like um, we don't make our staff stay on site for their PPA. We trust that they, they're doing a great job. And if they um, feel they work more effectively at home and they're not teaching, then they can go home. Or if actually they've got something to do in that PPA, but they're going to sit and mark for an hour later, then we will trust that as well. So I think you can show it in lots of different ways um but but it has got to be shown not just said definitely and you have um am i right in saying you've got flexi inset hours that people yes. have in your school yes yeah so we have two flexi inset days at the end normally at the end of the school year so we break up two days early and staff have to accrue um five hours for each day essentially and we do three in departments so the heads of department decide three hours of something that they think useful or required and then seven whole school hours and um there's lots of different options basically that people can do to accrue those hours so we have uh, pedagogy twilights which focuses on one area of pedagogy so it might be like cognitive load theory or higher order retrieval practice or some of the sessions that we're going to do next year and you can go and attend one of those we have research twilights which is where you just come and sit and read and read a piece of research and discuss that and how it might impact your teaching um, and we have independent reading so if you've read um, a chapter of a book or a blog or an EEF report and you want to come back and discuss that with your department then again that would be um, accruing hours and, and that does link to trust because I, you know I don't need to know oh this person has done x y and z we trust that the teachers are going to use that time effectively and um, and, that, and that's it really. Um, yeah I think that sounds really good it's as you both say it's kind of ingraining it in the culture of the school it's not just a word we say it's not just a word we put on the top of our vision of our pyramid of non-negotiables it's something we actually do and we do in everything we do we trust our staff then our staff will become better teachers and they'll give us more because they're going to be part of our community mike should we take a very quick break there so you can have your custard cream i know you're very excited about your custard cream i would not want to deprive you of that so should we take a quick break then when we come back we've got a couple of questions from some of our listeners mike that we're going to put to jade See you in a moment. Welcome back to Tea and Teaching. Uh, I believe now, Arthur, we're going to go on to our listeners' questions that we've got. Well, these were questions that I just thought were really good for um, kind of seeing both your opinions of also. So Dr. Keith, who, as we know, Mike, is a regular question answer, one of our faves, um, he was asking, Jade, how do you decide that research is robust enough to then use as your evidence-informed practice? Yeah, really good question. Um, 
I'm actually do, in our in our school. We've got 15 teachers at the moment who are doing the chartered college evidence informed certificates. That's one of the um, things that we funded this year, and we've just done a session on um, reliability of research and bias and that kind of thing. So I think there's some simple steps that you can go through. Look who the authors are. Look what their connections are. Why have they written the piece? You know, are they trying to persuade you to buy into some software, for example? And then actually look at the evidence, look at the, the methodology. So was the research done um, in a school or was it done in a lab setting? Because obviously that would make it um, less applicable to schools. What were the age of the students? Is that similar to the age of students that you're going to try and apply it to? What was the effect size? So I think you can have a look um, in depth. And, and that is not to say that more what we what, what we might call anecdotal evidence so teachers blogs about their experience and case studies it's not to discount that but i think it's to use it all and not just to think oh well that definitely confirms what what i want the evidence to prove so i'm just going to look at that actually thinking well that does but what is there anything else that um disproves it or that questions it or that found something to be different so really trying to get away from confirmation bias i guess and and questioning as much as you can Mike, you're going to build on that? I don't know if I can build on that. I mean, I personally, when I'm looking at the research, I, I just make, like you said, look into what purpose it's from. Um, and then whether it is a just a single research paper, uh, whether it's a meta-analysis of a number of different research papers or a meta-synthesis of many meta-analyses. Um, but thank you. Round of applause there. Um, Someone who hasn't done a master's who understands research, Alpha, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, How can you do this? Yeah, definitely looking for the purpose of that research. Um, I teach sports science at, at the International Baccalaureate level, and the amount of students who come back and they say, oh, I found this bit of research for my, uh, for my coursework. And you look at it, and it's, it's talking about the, the dangers of, I don't know, why you should, maybe it's telling why you should drink Gatorade and you look at who's made it and it's someone from the soft drinks industry. And you're like, that, that's not it. So we've got to, we've got to teach the kid, the students what a good bit of research looks like in the same way we've got to educate our staff as well about what good research is and what the purpose of that is. I would also say, look at where the research has been posted. If it's a, an article, it, what journals it in? Is it a well-respected peer-reviewed journal? Because you get some journals that are just outstanding and you can really trust in the sources. So know the source and that kind of leads into like, if you trust that source, there's a lot of really good sources out there. Next question. I'll add in, um, Martha, sorry, just to add in what we were talking about with Dr. Jared Horvath on our last episode, in terms of once you find a good piece of research, that there's not a need to read all 50 pages of that research and that you know he said to us that very few uh scientists actually read the full papers and actually they look for the, the kind of summary and the results um for that which can really ease the workload of a teacher trying to get into adopting a research-based approach yeah find a trusted source and it does kind of half work for you the next question was from Arfas, who said if you're uh, building middle leaders programs which i know mike is something you've done a lot of in your school what would be that one thing that you would want to include to help them become uh, evidence-informed middle leaders, I suppose, rather than just teachers? Um, Mike, should we go to you first this time, as always? Yeah, we haven't had it involved in our... We do an Aspire Middle Leaders course at our school, and we also do a Middle Leaders course. Um, but we haven't had anything in there in terms of research-based approach, because we're 
quite in our infancy. So I'm actually going to duck out of this one and hand over to Jade, who's a lot further down the road than we are. And then I'm going to take all of our ideas and reframe <laughs> them into my own. That's it, Mike. Um, so we actually don't do that much little middle leadership training at my school um, and that's because we have very low staff turnover so we don't really have that many new middle leaders coming into um, our school or, or certainly very few from from outside as well. So to be honest, it's not something that we've done a lot at. However, we have got a new um, head of department starting with us in September. So I've just been looking over the last couple of weeks about what I'm going to do um, with them when they come in. And I think that really it's focusing on the main aspects of what I would see as a middle leader's role and then looking at the evidence for that. So I can't remember the exact programme, but some of the things that I'm going to focus on are like leadership of behaviour, not just in your classroom, but obviously um, wider than that and how you can best support the teachers in your department, but also how you can create a really positive um, culture in, in your classrooms leading CPD so our heads of department regularly lead departmental CPD so I think it's really important to look at the research behind what makes CPD effective what is the subject specific research in their field so looking at the EEF report on mathematics for example um, we are going to go through my introductory guide to teaching and learning just because I think that if you've come from another school maybe you haven't done as much as the teachers in our school so just to kind of get caught up on the main elements of evidence-informed teaching and learning and then we're also going to look at curriculum so we last year or the year before I forget because of Covid and everything merges into one but we went through quite a rigorous curriculum review process so I think it's looking at the background to that as well and, and looking at what uh, what has been written about good curriculum thinking and how might that impact their um, their changes as well for anything they want to do going forward so off the top of my head they, they were the main things that I wanted to focus on did you get Sorry, your notes there Mike? School bell. school bell yeah yeah lunchtime start of lunchtime lunchtime well, then we'll we'll get towards the end, Jay. I don't want to take too much of your lunch time away. <laughs> no, that's um, fine. I've got one question kind of following up from that is because your school's got, it sounds like quite a, a strong a culture. You know what you are. You know what you want to be. You know the journey you're taking. Does that change your recruitment policy at all when you're looking for teachers? Are you looking for teachers that are also going to kind of build into that culture and buy into that culture of the school rather than just the best teacher? Uh, yeah, it's a mix. So we are looking for teachers that either are, are already evidence informed, whether that's because their school has been their previous school has been strong on that or their initial teacher training has been strong on that or because they've developed that interest themselves or that are open to evidence-informed teaching and learning um, so we've, we've updated our recruitment process so uh, all of our paperwork first of all states really strongly we are an evidence-informed um, school all of our teaching is evidence-informed based and like in the person spe person specification for example it will say um, has a strong interest in evidence-based teaching and learning so we've changed all of that um, our interview process really asks about um, what do you know about evidence-informed teaching and learning, give us some examples about how your teaching is evidence-informed. We ask about their CPD, so what independent CPD do you read, um, you know, what, what teaching and learning books have you read, are you on social media, all that kind of thing, you know, who do you follow on Twitter, that kind of thing. Um, and 
I think that, and then also, sorry, we do um, a task as well, which I stole off Adam Boxer. So it's not my idea at all. It was his really good idea. We get them to um, annotate their lesson plan really in depth, explaining the evidence informed ideas. So if, for example, they're doing a retrieval practice starter, why are they doing a retrieval practice starter? Um, and that really helps to see um, how evidence informed they are. And then Obviously, you can't expect everybody to be as evidence informed as maybe teachers in our school because they just haven't been on that journey yet. But if not, then it's are you open to those ideas and to um, using evidence, etc. That no, sounds um, sounds a really interesting culture to be part of and a, a school I would very much have liked to be part of. I think uh, it sounds yeah. really interesting to kind of build out. It sounds like. Mike, have you got your takeaways? Because I know you were coming into this hoping to take lots of ideas away. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's it's really cool to see someone who's years down the road compared to us and kind of, it's just our job now to kind of work out how we get there. One last question for me, Jay, was um, obviously you're driving this. And I know you said your head teacher has been really, really supportive of it as well and on board. How do you make sure that this model's sustainable that's that when you move on to your next career step or your next school that this carries on with the kind of the model you've got and the effectiveness that you've got yeah that's a brilliant question actually and it's something that my head teacher has been really keen so it's actually myself and, and my deputy head teacher um who who really have led this together and um he has really started to say recently there's only two of you and if you both leave what's going to happen um, and really trying to future proof it so the way that we've done that is by appointing these new teaching and learning coaches so we've got um three um people who are really going to be at the forefront of things we also do two voluntary teaching and learning groups one's a teaching and learning inquiry group and one's a teaching and learning research group and they each have about 20 members so it's trying to expand the amount of teachers that are engaging in research and are starting to get really passionate about it and then the third that we're starting from September is that it is no longer going to be just myself and, and our deputy head um, leading training sessions we're, we're branching out we've, we've now developed a, a really good body of teachers who are as evidence informed as I am and, and often send me stuff that I haven't even seen yet you know and they'll say oh, I've seen this blog have you seen it and I'm like no but thank you know amazing thanks so much so it's about starting to use them more so that when you go you've created this culture of everyone engages in in research and everyone's really interested in it but you've also got a number of people who um, will will continue to champion and lead on that approach as well which I think is really important thanks and, and uh I just want to say thanks so much for joining us today, Jade. I know it's your, your lunch break and uh, I don't want to take any more of your time. Arthur, have you got anything else? Last little questions that you want to squeeze in? Um, my last kind of thing, really, and it's a really quick one, Jade, is you talked about there kind of trying to help other people kind of essentially not need you in the role. Essentially, it's kind of being part of a culture. So where do you kind of you see, where's your kind of next step? I'm not talking about moving away from school, different schools within the schools, but kind of how do you keep yourself motivated by doing this each year? How do you keep yourself wanting to get more evidence? Um, 
to be honest, it's just a, a really big natural inter interest of mine. I always loved school. I loved pretty much every subject apart from things like D&T because I'm horrendous at anything like that. Um, but I always loved learning. I was always interested in, you know, it could be history or science or English. And I was just really, really interested. And, and now that interest has gone into um you know pedagogy and teaching and learning and and that kind of, they, those areas so i'm i'm lucky in that um and i think we're at an amazing time at the moment in the uk when there is so much research and there is so much evidence and there are there are always new books so i always feel like oh well we've, we've done kind of like you know um metacognition and retrieval practice but actually we haven't really looked at assessment yet so oh my god we can yeah that's amazing i'm going, going to get really into assessment now we can look at that as well uh so lucky that it's a natural interest and that i love reading and i've always loved learning but then you know such a wealth of, of information that you can continue to get engaged with really awesome thank you so much for your time jade it's been a really interesting conversation i've learned loads i bet mike's learned loads and i hope everyone who listened has got something they now want to go away and look at because i know there's a few things i now go want to go away and look at so yeah thank, thank you, you so much so for having much me awesome. loved Enjoy it thank you so much yes you too welcome back to teen teaching mike I, I absolutely loved that. That was absolutely brilliant. Learned so much. Um, what was kind of your, I know it's harder. What's your key takeaway from that? What's the one thing you want to take away? Uh, it's such a powerful conversation, wasn't it? Uh, I think for me, it's about, she talked about the barriers for teachers, which is finding the research and having time to read it. Um, and being able to condense it and summarize it and distribute it to teachers and just put it in their hands in a really easy to read way is something I'll definitely be doing in my school uh, come next academic year. So that's my my key takeaway. What's yours? I think it was her utter passion for what she does. Um, and I know if I was in that environment and I had someone in the school or my organisation who was that passionate about something, it just draws you in. Like, um, And also backing up that passion with just, just knowledge. So she makes me want to learn about stuff and then she's actually got the information she can show me where to go so she's bringing me in and then she's telling me where to go and i i find that really powerful as an employee um to have someone who's able to do that um yeah no really interesting and i think what was really good about that is the stuff that people can now take away from that and go and do definitely definitely and just go and find research from all the places she said and just use it in your teaching have conversations with your colleagues that's definitely important. Um, a massive thank you to everyone for listening to this episode. Uh, I've had a really, really good time and loads of stuff I'm going to take away from this. As always, Arthur, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening and we'll speak to you next time. See you soon, buddy. Bye.